0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we learn just how much of our modern world is built with, on, and using sand. Did you know sand in the desert is more or less useless? Did you know there's a serious black market trade in sand in certain parts of the world, and that people are murdered to protect that black market trade? Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Vince Beiser is an award winning journalist based in LA and has reported from over a hundred countries, states, provinces, kingdoms, occupied territories, liberated areas, no man's lands, and disaster zones. He's written for publications including Wired, The Atlantic, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times, and many others. He is here today to speak to me about his new book, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. Vince, welcome to Science for the People.
1: Thanks, Rochelle. It's great to be here.
0: If we consider a set of topics that seem maybe at first blush to be entirely mundane and not at all interesting, I think a lot of people would probably put sand on that list of topics. So I have to ask, what started you down the path to writing a book about sand? That is a fine
1: question because really, uh, you know, if you'd, if you'd told me a few years ago that I was going to be spending, uh, you know, a big chunk of my life writing and thinking about sand, I would have thought that was completely ridiculous. Um, but basically what happened was I'm, you know, I'm a freelance journalist. So I'm always looking for a good story and I read a lot of kind of, you know, off the beaten track publications and websites and whatnot. And I just stumbled across, uh, a little item in a in a little environmental website that uh taught me two things one was that um that uh, sand is the most consumed natural resource on the planet after water and air and that just kind of made me sit up and take notice because I was like sand? sand I never even thought I never even thought about sand as a natural resource right it's just like the stuff that lies around everywhere and gets in your shoes at the beach <laughs> right um And then the second thing was that there's so much demand for sand that all over the world, riverbeds and beaches are being stripped bare to get the sand we need. And in some places, people are even being murdered over it. And I thought all that was, I thought that was just completely bananas. I'd never heard anything so crazy, like sand. People are getting murdered over sand. So I got started looking into it and sure enough, you know, come to find out it's this incredibly important substance that nobody ever thinks about. And our need for it is causing all this damage. And down the rabbit hole I went and here I am.
0: It is quite a rabbit hole, as I uh, obviously discovered in reading the book. Um, I'm just going to pick up one of the things you just mentioned, crime. I had no idea there was so much crime happening around sand, because as you say, it's this apparently wildly abundant thing that we don't really think about ever needing to involve crime. <laughs> yeah,
1: it, it seems completely crazy, but I mean... The thing is, sand. there is a lot of sand in the world, of course. It's actually the most abundant thing on the planet. But at the end of the day, there's only so much of it. It's, there's a finite amount of it, and there's only so much of it in in particular places. And the thing about sand is it's really heavy. Right, a cubic yard of sand weighs more than a ton. So as soon as you start having to transport it, any more anything more than a few miles, the price of it goes up really fast. So builders, developers, the people who use sand, which is primarily for concrete, they want to get it close to home, and that means that the sources of sand that are close to uh, cities that are that are growing really fast, like in you know New Delhi, or Beijing, Jakarta. That's putting huge pressure on the supplies of sand there. And that's where the criminals have entered in. They seize control of that sand, make a lot of money off of it. And you know, people who try to stop them often wind up dead
0: that's really quite shocking, the idea that people are actually dying over the business of sand. Um, that I mean, I've heard stories of kind of like luxury beaches getting stolen. Um, and that has a sort of lighthearted kind of funny piece to it because we think of these kind of luxurious white sand beaches that very wealthy people go to kind of getting stolen in the middle of the night. It brings to my mind the maple syrup heist from Canada. There's something kind of delightful about that. Um, But there's a real dark side to a lot of what's going on in the sand market, and especially in in those areas.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree. I mean, there's, there's something hilarious about the idea of people stealing a beach. But when you're stealing sand by the by the thousands and millions of tons, there's really big money involved. And there's really big damage that can happen. I mean, I'll so can I tell you a little story that just kind of illustrates it? That's, yeah, absolutely. That's in the book? So this is the kind of the uh, was the first thing that I started looking into. The first uh, uh, story that I really started looking into as part of my my research into sand was the murder of this one particular guy um, who's a villager, just a farmer in uh, in India. His name is Paliram Chohan. So what happened there is, and this is very. It's it's quite typical of a lot of the people who've been who've been murdered in India over sand in the last few years. What happened was um, the sand mafia, as they're called in India, like that's what the press calls them, came to town, his little to his village, which is about an hour south of Delhi, and just seized about 200 acres of the village's land, just took it over, ripped up all the crops, stripped away all the topsoil, and started mining out the sand which they then sold to developers in Delhi, right? People who were building high-rises and shopping malls who needed lots and lots of sand to turn into concrete. So these guys are making a lot of money off of it, but the villagers, you know, they had just lost their land. So this guy, Pali Ram Chohan, was a bit of a leader in the village, and he tried to stand up to these guys and said, you know, you've got to stop this, like – um, you're stealing our land, our property, number one. Number two, it's 100% illegal. Sand mining is actually banned in that area because it's, it's environmentally sensitive because there's, because of the, the damage that it causes to, to bird life, especially in that area. Um, but they just basically ignored him. He went around to the police, to the, to the local media, to government officials trying to get these guys shut down. Couldn't get anywhere, partly because there's so much corruption in India, and these guys were spreading a lot of bribes around. But eventually, he sort of got to be enough of a nuisance to them that one of them took him aside one day and said, look, you're really starting to annoy us. You're starting to interfere with our business. Cut it out, or we're going to kill you. He didn't stop. He kept on trying. And about a week after he was threatened, three guys kicked in the door of his house and shot him dead while he was sleeping. So... You know, it's a terrible story, right? And um, and the the worst part about it is it's not unique. I mean, this kind of thing happens uh, practically on at least a weekly basis in India, in in Indonesia, and Kenya, and a bunch of other places around the world. Sand miners, you know, people are getting killed either. You know, local people trying to stop sand miners from stealing their sand, environmental activists that are raising the alarm about it, journalists, a number of journalists who've been trying to expose this have been hacked to death with machetes, burned to death. Even police officers have been killed in India. So it's a really, it, like I say, it's, a, it's at its worst in India, but people have been killed in at least a, a handful of other countries around the world. It's, you know, it sounds absolutely crazy, but it's a very real
0: problem it does sound completely insane for people to get killed over sand, but your book actually kind of goes through some of the reasons why this might happen. Um, so definitely a, a recurring topic in the book that you hit over and over again. Um, we use a lot of sand, but we're always looking for just the right kind. And that right kind of sand is basically never the sand that makes up the huge swaths of desert that people probably inevitably think of when you say the word sand. I mean, the Sahara anyone. Apparently that sand is useless to us.
1: Right. Tragic. Also kind of tragic comic, but yep, there's tons of sand in the deserts and it's all completely useless to us. And the reason for that is, like I said, the, the main thing that we use sand for, like 90 plus percent of the sand that we use in the world goes to make concrete, goes to make buildings, right? And roads and dams and structures. And the desert sand, the, the grains are actually the wrong shape for that purpose they're, they've been eroded by by wind over thousands and millions of years and as a result the grain desert grains are shaped um, they're really smooth and round whereas the desert the sorry the sand that you find at the bottom of rivers and the bottom of lakes and even at the bottom of the ocean or on beaches it's more angular it's got more corners and edges so it, it locks together much better to, and makes a more Stable structure. It's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack of marbles as opposed to a stack of little bricks. So, all that desert sand, completely useless.
0: That is tragic. Uh, and it also leads to some really weird scenarios, like, for example, places like the United Arab Emirates, which is basically on this little tiny edge of a massive desert, has to import sand.
1: That's right. That's right. They had to import sand from Australia to build the Burj Khalifa, which is the biggest, the tallest building in the world. You can imagine how much concrete went into that thing. And yeah, even though they're right there at the edge of the Arabian desert, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have the right kind of sand that they needed for that. They had to import it to Australia. So you can, you can just imagine the guy in Australia rubbing his hands and telling his buddies, that's right, I sold sand to the Arabs.
0: Oh, I mean, are we able to use desert sand for anything practical?
1: uh not much i mean a few there's a few uh like industrial applications i think that you can use it for and there is an outfit there's a private company in uh denmark that um that i've heard from that claims they've come up with a way uh some kind of system that whereby you can use sand for making concrete they're a little startup i don't know if i can't vouch for whether or not their technology actually works or not if it does it could be a great thing but um So far, so far, the the jury's out. It hasn't come to market yet.
0: So there's at least one company somewhere that's trying.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's right. God go with them.
0: Uh, One of the things you talk about, um, you'd think a book about sand contains a lot about the desert. But actually, there's only uh, one area where you talk about the problems that we have with deserts, which is not that we can use the sand for certain applications, but that the sand gets in our way. The migrating sand dunes cause a lot of problems.
1: Yeah, this is kind of that one chapter is sort of the flip side of sand, you know, it's like, although all the rest of the book is about all the different ways that we use sand, um, and that sand kind of helps us, although, you know, it does create a lot of problems along the way. But yeah, then there's this big problem where sand actually becomes our, our lethal enemy, which is desertification, which is the fact that all around the world, deserts are growing, and in some places, they're growing really fast, um, taking over, you know, what had been arable land. Sometimes it's dunes, uh, uh, moving around and covering entire villages or blowing over, uh, highways and shutting them down. But the main problem is just that the dry lands, the area of the desert is, is growing all the time. Um, and the reason for that, as usual, it's our fault. It's human beings' fault, <laughs> right? What's happening is we're, we're using up Uh, We're sucking up more and more groundwater and overgrazing in those like marginal lands. You know, on the deserts, you know, deserts sort of fade into kind of marginal grasslands, you know, areas that are like scrubby, like the desert we have here in Southern California. There's, There's plants, there's some, you know, scrub grasses and shrubs and, you know, some things can live there because there is some water there, but as more and more and more people move out to those areas and suck up more water to use in industry and for drinking and to, and um, turn loose more and more livestock, it just dries out the land completely. And then uh, the winds blow the topsoil away. Plants dry up. They, the roots don't hold down the topsoil. The wind blows the topsoil away until there's nothing left but sand and rocks. So I went to China is where I did my most of my reporting about this, where they had a huge problem. Um, with the, with desertification, the deserts were expanding by something on the order of a few thousand kilometers every year, right? Just huge swaths of area were, were getting turned into desert. So China has, has responded to this massive problem with what they, a massive solution, quote unquote, something they hope is a solution, which may or may not be, which is the biggest tree planting program ever in history. They are planting billions of trees in a belt 3,000 miles long. That's like the distance from San Francisco to Boston. They're planting billions and billions of trees basically along the edge of the desert to try to stop it. And They claim it's working. It may or may not be working, but in the long run, it's. a lot of people are very concerned that it's actually it's creating a lot of impacts that are going to turn out to make things worse than ever in the long run.
0: It seems to be a popular theme quite often when we try and do something to stop a problem we caused, we can often end up creating new problems or making the problem worse.
1: Yeah, right? It's the the law of unforeseen consequences. So, I mean, I think any time that you're, you know, that you're messing with the natural world on such a gigantic scale, whether you're talking about you know, pulling up 50 billion tons of sand a year, or whether you're talking about planting however many billions of trees, we just, you know, we just don't know enough about how this world works to know how that's going to affect things. You know, and I think we keep learning that lesson over and over again.
0: Although clearly, we're not learning it if we have to keep hitting our head against that wall again. (laughs) Right, exactly.
1: We keep getting taught that lesson and not learning it.
0: Well, we are a stubborn species. So if the desert sands aren't useful to us what type of sand is useful?
1: Okay. So the sand that we really want is quartz sand. What is so let me take a step back for a second. What is the sand in the first place? Sand the, the word sand it really just means uh any Little grains, little small bits of any hard substance. And if you really want to get technical, because I know it's that kind of podcast, it's it's grains, any grain that has a diameter between two millimeters and 0.0625 millimeters. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anything in that range, that's sand. So so I mean, so that's lots of things, right? It can be so sand can be crushed up shells, shells that have been crushed up by by the waves, and that's why you get you know like in the caribbean they have some uh, some of those pink sand beaches or in hawaii you have those famous black sand beaches that's volcanic rock that's been crushed up um and the sand that you see you know on your you know on your local beach or wherever it's a mix of whatever kinds of rocks happen to be prevalent in the local geology right it could be you know chert or obsidian or um just about anything but most of the sand in the world Most sand grains and the stuff that we use is quartz, uh, silicon dioxide. Um, And basically, that stuff is – it's an incredibly useful and versatile material, quartz is. It's really, really hard, which makes it – which is why it's so good as a building material. And it also has all these other crazy properties, which is why we can uh, do things like make it into glass, Glass is basically nothing but quartz sand that's been melted down, mixed with a couple of other things, but it's mainly just melted quartz sand. It's really kind of a miraculous material.
0: Let's actually talk a little bit about glass. Um, Of course, it's one of sand's most well-known uses. I think everybody knows that glass uh, is made from sand. How is glass actually made?
1: So glass, basically what you do is you take a bunch of high-purity quartz sand. You can't just use any old sand. Um, you need stuff that's, that's very, that's got a very high uh, silica content, very high quartz content, 95% plus. So that stuff. You find it in, there's a lot of it in Ohio, which is why Ohio, uh, had and still has a, a really big glass industry. Um, places like the Fontainebleau region in France have something like 98% plus pure silicon sand, silica sand. So, um, they've been like all the, you know, those famous European crystal makers. That's where they get. A lot of their sand is from that region. So how do you, how do you turn sand into, into glass? It's really, it's kind of an amazing process. It's really, it's unlike, unlike with, con- with concrete, where you're basically just gluing all those grains together, you know, trillions and trillions of grains. With glass, you're actually chain, transmuting the grains into something, into something completely different, right? You're fusing them together to make a completely new substance. So the way you do that is, First of all, you got to melt them, which is hard. They're very they're hard to melt down. You need temperatures of upwards of sixteen hundred degrees Celsius, and then you take that that um, you can lower that melting point by mixing it with with stuff that's called flux, which can be a nub, bunch of different things, um, soda or sodium carbonate, things that are have a lot of uh, uh, calcium in them, mm-hmm. can and that then lowers that melting point. So you put in some of that stuff, melt it down. Then you throw in a little calcium, can be powdered limestone, could be even seashell fragments, and you melt all that stuff together, let it cool down, and that's glass. So they think nobody, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Nobody actually knows how people figured out how to do this in the first place, because we have glass that goes back before recorded history, you know, little glass trinkets and glass ornaments and stuff. And I think what you know, the, the sort of leading theory that makes sense to me is that somebody was just, you know, built a big fire on a beach, must've had a bonfire going on a beach, um, where some of the, some of the, uh, nearby plants must've had some of this flux material that lowered the, the, the melting point of the sand enough and that, that it had some crushed up, uh, shells in there to act as flux. And when the fire burned down, they must've been like, Whoa, what's this stuff? you know, just accidentally created the first glass. Nobody really knows how it happens, which is kind of also kind of amazing to
0: me. It is kind of a magical substance when you think that something just like a handful of sand, obviously, the right type of sand as we've established, um, can be turned into something like glass, which is transparent, we've put it to so many uses. Um, there's a, a really great bit of history that you have in the book about how, uh, the impact of glass bottles, which I'm hoping that you won't mind retelling. Um, can you talk a little bit about how glass bottles were originally made and how we got to glass bottles being automated?
1: I'll do that. Since you brought it up, can I take just a minute to to just go off on how absolutely incredible glass is?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: Because I got to tell you, like i really uh, I, if I hadn't spent so much time on glass already, I could do a whole nother book just on glass it is just it's amazing stuff right where we think about it with our you know with we with our windows, which are kind of amazing enough, but it's also glass can be practically everything I mean we use it we make gigantic slabs out of it to to make things like uh you know uh astronomic telescope lenses out of, which can be like 20-ton slabs of glass, we can also spin glass into tiny filaments that are thinner than a human hair. That's optical fibers, right? The, the optical fibers that carry a lot of internet traffic, those are made out of glass, spun glass that's incredibly, incredibly fine. And We make it into lenses. One of the things that, that I had never thought about before was if we hadn't figured out how to make sand into glass and glass into lenses— the whole scientific revolution probably never would have happened because we would have had no microscopes and we would have had no telescopes. These two things, these two types of lenses basically opened up the world to us, right? They opened up, they clued us into what was happening in the world that's impossible to see with the naked eye. The, the, you know, the movement of tiny, uh, tiny bits of matter and, and down to the level, down to the submolecular level and then things that we couldn't possibly see out in outer space. All of that is just thanks to glass. Every time I think about it, it just kind of blows my mind all over again.
0: That's true. There is something about that in how both telescopes and microscopes have allowed us to almost see outside the realm of the human to things that are so much bigger, but also so much smaller that kind of don't impact us, but also really do.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, it's almost like having superpowers, right? You stick your eye to a microscope lens and suddenly you have this amazing power that's way beyond, you have this ability that's way beyond any human vision. You can see, you know, you can see molecules, you can see things, you can see a flea's whiskers. And just, you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys and you and your listeners how many advances and discoveries have been made thanks to the microscope, right?
0: We owe a lot to glass. We owe a
1: lot to glass. And we owe bottles to glass, which brings me (laughs) back to bottles. So bottles. So the deal with bottles was – so around up until the the like late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a lot of glass in circulation. It was a pretty sizable industry. It was actually one of the very first industries that American colonists set up back in the, the Jamestown colony in Virginia. But it was you know it was hard to do, and it was really like a, it was a luxury item. It was something that you had to have a fair bit of money to to be able to afford you know glass windows in your house or glass tableware. It was really expensive because it all had to be made by hand. Well, come the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds. Of course, the Industrial Revolution is moving into high gear, and everything's getting automated, and you know all these processes are starting to be done by machines. So there's this guy named Michael Owens who had grown up uh, as a in the in a as a child worker in a glass factory. Which was really common at the time, the glass industry actually was one of the number one employers of of child labor, and I mean kids like seven eight, nine years old, thousands and thousands of them worked in these glass factories, which were by all accounts completely hellish.
0: Why were could, there so many kids in this industry?
1: They needed to be um they needed to be uh sort of small and nimble and cheap mm. <laughs> <Basically. Aww. laughs> yeah and you know kids kids would work for less than grown men Mm -hmm. because who's looking out for kids and they needed them to to be able to get up so the way that you made glass back then was you know they would they would take that mix of sand and soda ash and flux and stuff put it in a giant pots inside a furnace melt it down into this kind of thick goop and then uh uh a gaffer as it was called or a gatherer would stick a blowpipe into the pot and sort of swirl up a glob of this stuff and roll it into a ball on a metal table. And then he would literally blow into the pipe until, and, and blow out that, that map, that, that glob of glass into the desired shape, into the shape of a bottle or a, you know, a, whatever kind of glass where they were making. And then once it was in the right basic shape, this, the blower and the boys, these, uh, they'd have a bunch of, of boys would sort of help to shape it with wooden tools, reheating it if they needed to, but kind of slap it into shape. And then again, boys would have, their job was to grab this blazing hot piece of half finished glass to another furnace where it would be cooled down and hardened, right? So the whole process took, uh, I mean a standard crew would be about 5 to 8 men and boys they'd work 10 hours a day at least and they could make about 3600 bottles a day right so it's like 10 odd people working all day long about 3000 bottles not really that many so so here's Michael Owens he'd worked his way up to um uh, like a management level uh at the glass company where he worked at and he had Zero formal education. I mean, he had dropped out of school when he was about eight years old to go work in the glass factories. He was no engineer, but he was a very smart guy. And he, you know, he'd worked every stage of the glass making process. And he just basically looked around and decided, you know what? I can design a machine that will do this better. So he got the boss's support. He got some money, about $500,000, which was a lot of money in those days. And indeed, he worked and worked and tinkered and tinkered and tried and tried and he developed in 1903 he came out with the very first automatic bottle making machine it's this crazy looking contraption it's it's called the owens bottle machine and i really encourage folks to just google image that one because it's just this marvel of sort of victorian engineering It's like this octopus with six rotating arms and all these gears and bits and pieces and pumps and plungers and it's a great machine. Um, Anyway, and it was a huge success, right? It could produce bottles. The very first model was six times faster than a human crew could produce them, and he kept perfecting it. And it, it, you know, very soon it was just exponentially faster and cheaper. And better at making bottles than any system that had ever come before. So, all of a sudden, glass bottles, which had been, you know, quite expensive and not, you know, they were used for wine and, you know, patent medicines and stuff like that, all of a sudden they are cheap. And all of a sudden, anybody who wants to sell something in a bottle can. And this, it turns out, completely revolutionizes what Americans, what people all over the world eat and drink. Because it meant that all of a sudden, if you're a beer maker, for instance, you can now put your product very cheaply into a glass bottle and ship it all over the country. And it'll last almost indefinitely because glass is a really great packaging material. Um, It's pretty much chemically inert. So it doesn't make things taste funny. You know, like if you put something in a plastic bottle, it'll start to taste of plastic after a little while but glass doesn't do that glass you know doesn't affect the taste of the thing inside it at all and you can cap it and it'll last almost indefinitely so bottle beer you know uh breweries the coca-cola company had also was also just getting off the ground at this time and they were like whoa what a great thing let's start putting our stuff in these bottles and now we can sell it all over the country which they did and so um you can actually track the growth the growth of coca-cola in the first years of the 1900s tracks almost exactly with the growth in the number of with the, the the development of the mass manufactured bottle so basically it meant that you know all these things and everything from ketchup to peanut butter to beer to to coke could suddenly become a mass market item that, That these things could become, could move from becoming luxuries or things that were, you know, difficult to get or to transport to stuff you can get absolutely everywhere.
0: And it wasn't just the individual cost to produce the bottles. The bottles, in part because they were automated, were much more consistent. So you could actually run those completed bottles through other automated machines that would fill them with things, cap them with things. And because they were so precise, there was now this extra level of automation that we could do on top of the fact that we could automate building the bottles.
1: You got it. Exactly. Exactly right. You know, automation on top of automation. And once, you, yeah, the, the sizes were standardized, the, you know, all the, because, you know, you can imagine when you're blowing glass by hand, it, you know, things are always a little bit different and the openings are a little bit wonky, but yeah, all of a sudden they could just mass manufacture these things and, and fill them and seal them on mass. And it meant that you know, it just moved all kinds of products out of the category of luxury item into the category of just mass consumption, like dispos- disposably cheap.
0: So I've got to assume that that kind of quick change in the demand for something like glass bottle, like glass bottles would have, I would assume, significantly changed the demand for sand at that time as well.
1: Did it ever? The uh, I'm just... Pulling up the actual stat. Okay. So Owens introduces his first, the world's first automatic bottle making machine in 1903. In 1903, silica sand, that's the kind of high purity sand that you need to make glass. In 1903, the United States produced 1.1 million tons of silica sand. That's the year that the bottle maker comes on the market. The very next year, United States produces 4.4 million tons. So the amount of sand that we're using quadruples in one year. In one year after the one year, that's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It's totally crazy. And of course, now we're using you know exponentially more than that. Well, that time, yeah, and just goes to show you how this. You know, I mean, think about glass bottles. Think about how many glass bottles you see and don't even think about every day. You know, beer bottles, wine bottles, pop bottles. And then, you know, subtract and then think about all the plastic bottles that you see now. Cause plastic, of course, we've, we've started using plastic for a lot of those bottles. But 50 years ago, all those plastic bottles were also glass, right? All those bottles of those containers of juice and soft drinks and whatever else was all glass.
0: It's amazing how just one seemingly small change that we make in how we build something can have a really big impact into the supply chain for a lot of different stuff and to just ecological impacts of demands. Um, I do want to talk about concrete as well, switching gears a little bit, because if there is an elephant in the room uh, that is labeled sand, it has got <laughs> to be concrete. So uh, it has got to be. That's that big gray thing concrete elephant. So for anybody listening, we're not going to delve too far into the history of concrete because we have an entire show that we did last year about the history of concrete. It is fascinating. There will be a link to it in the episode show notes. But just to recap for maybe anybody who isn't up on how concrete is made, can you give us a quick rundown on how we make concrete?
1: Sure. So concrete is basically just sand and gravel stuck together with cement. Right? A lot of people mix up cement and concrete. Cement is one of the components of concrete. It's a fine powder that basically just acts as glue. So what you do is you get a bunch of gravel and sand. And gravel is basically just big chunks of sand, right? It's just also pieces of rock. You get gravel and sand. You mix it up with water and you throw in some cement. Uh, stir that whole mix up. Let it dry, let it cure, and it dries and locks together to form concrete, which is, you know, the artificial rock that we all know and despise despite what it all does for us. That's the basic recipe. There, are, by now, of course, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of really specialized types of concrete that we use for different applications, you know, for you you use a slightly, you know, different concrete for, you know, to to, to withstand high high temperatures or extremely low temperatures, or if you're building a really tall building, or if you're building a giant dam. But basically just rocks, little pieces of rock stuck together with cement. That's what concrete is.
0: It makes me think of like a high industrial strength paper mache. That's basically what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So how much concrete is the world using? We are using
1: so much concrete. We use enough concrete every year to build a wall almost 90 feet high and 90 feet across right the way around the equator every single year. That's a big wall. (laughs) That's a big wall. That's a lot of concrete. So... Yeah, it's... It's the most, it's far and away the most, uh, the the most used man-made material ever in history by far. And we use way more of it, by the way, than, than, not only than any other building material like brick or wood or, uh, you know, stone. We use more of it than all of those other materials combined. If you put together every other building material, steel, wood, bricks, the whole works, we use more concrete than all of them put together.
0: So if I were to draw myself a pie chart on the uses of sand, uh, setting aside the useless desert sand, we were to draw a little pie chart, what sort of broad proportion of the pie of that sand that we use would be dedicated to concrete?
1: Uh, you know, I should know, I should have a number for you off the top of my head. I don't, I don't have the exact number, but it's, it's the overwhelming majority. It's at least – 80 plus percent.
0: Oh wow, that's huge. That's a huge yeah. amount of sand that's going into concrete.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. It's I mean it's it's a volume thing, right? If you just look around, you know, keeping in mind that every concrete structure is mostly just a big pile of sand. Just, you know, look around wherever you are, man, whatever whatever buildings you can see out of your window, that's all sand. The roads that connect them, all sand. Asphalt, by the way, is also just sand and gravel stuck together with a, with a different glue. That's the only real difference between asphalt and concrete. But so all of our roads, all of our highways, um, all sand, all of our, so much of our industrial infrastructure, dams, most of the dams that get built in the world today out of concrete, bridges, concrete, airport runways, concrete. So just the, the amount, the sheer, v- Volume of this stuff is when you step back and think about it, it's just mind-blowing.
0: We'll be back with more Science for the People right after this. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, Join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. Um, so let's talk about silicone before we end, because this is another obviously very famous use of sand. I think most people know that uh, sand is what we use to make silicone chips, but what I don't think most people know is how that works at all. so you can you c- quickly walk us through how we make silicone chips?
1: I can, but let me actually just correct you briefly oh. if i if I might absolutely there's there's a difference between silicon.
0: As ah. in sil-
1: the silicon silicon chips yep. that we use and silicone, right? Both of them are
0: made from sand. Oh well, <laughs> then we're okay. splitting. We're splitting. We're splitting sand hairs, really. Well, we might be <laughs> splitting grains. but oh, actually, uh, oh!
1: I should have. I was looking difference. for that
0: one and I just missed it.
1: Sorry, you can have it. You can have
0: it.
1: <laughs> You're kind. Anyway, silicone. So both of them come from sand, which mm-hmm. is again silica. But silicone with an e on the end uh, is a is a material that um, we use for it 's like an additive that we use most famously for breast implants silicone breast implants it 's like this you know spongy rubbery kind of stuff it 's also the stuff that that makes the elastic that makes your underwear snap into place. Mm-hmm. Um, and all kinds of other, like, industrial applications, like silicone sealant. If you've ever had to seal up, like, a, you know, a, a, a windowsill or, you know, a spot that's leaking in your wall, you get, you can go to the drug, to the hardware store and get s- that silicone sealant. It's just like this sort of rubbery paste. Yep. So that's silicone, which is very different from silicon with no E. Silicon is the stuff that we make our computer chips out of. So you start with your with this high purity silica sand, same kind of sand that you use for glass, right? 95% yep. plus. Then you take you take that that sand, that quartz, and you blast it uh, usually in an electric furnace, um, which creates a chemical reaction that separates out the oxygen, right? So quartz is silicon dioxide, it's silicon plus uh oxygen. So the first thing is you need to get rid of the oxygen. So you blast it, subjecting it to super high heat. Gets strips away most of the oxygen, mm-hmm. and that gets you what's called silicon metal, which is about 99% pure silicon. That sounds re- that sounds like a lot. 99%? Not even close. Not even close to the level of purity you need for for computer chips. You need to for computer chips. You need silicon that is 99.11 nines after the decimal. I'm not even going to try and say it. But <laughs> 99.11 <laughs> nine, nines after the decimal. No joke. So why
0: why is purity so important?
1: Well, because I mean, silicon. The silicon. The the amounts that we're using on those chips are is incredibly tiny,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? It's got to work. uh, um, It's got to. They've got. It's got to be able to be compressed to be placed on a teeny tiny chip and perform its operations. It's got to be able to act as a semiconductor flawlessly, right? There can't be any, the slightest impurity will could interfere with or or disrupt the process of it conducting those electric signals, which are what make your the chips work.
0: I guess because everything's on such a small scale, we have to think about how things get disrupted at that really small scale rather than, oh, it's just the smallest impurity will just like leapfrog over it. But when you actually are looking at something that small, it really starts to matter, I guess
1: right exactly exactly i mean it matters at the molecular level so so you take that so you've got your 99% pure silicon level then you have to you run it through another of series of of industrial chemical processes And some of these, like some of these are known about. Some of these I, are, I'm, I'm a bit vague about because the companies that do them won't talk about them. They're, they're kind of trade secrets. Right. But, but what we know is you have to, you subject them to certain chemical processes, which converts that silicon metal into two things. Tell me if I'm going too deep into the weeds, but I know you're a sciencey bunch out there. But, um, it basically, you get two compounds out of that. One is uh, silicon tetrachloride, Mm -hmm. which you then go on, which then becomes the glass cores of optical fibers, like we talked about before. So you take that stuff, set it aside, you sell it to some company that's going to make it into optical fibers. The other stuff is called trichlorosilane, which you then treat further, more chemical processes, more industrial processes, until it becomes polysilicon, which is an extremely pure form of silicon. Um, and all of this, by the way, this is each of these steps. And by now, we're talking about a dozen plus steps. They're they're usually carried out by several different companies. So, like one company sells the sand to another company. The, the, that company melts it down into the silicon metal, and they'll sell the silicon metal to somebody else, who'll so turn it into the next two things. Oh, interesting. So on and so on. Yeah. So it's a really complicated. So this is quite quote. a chain
0: of suppliers that supply other suppliers.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and every time at every step, the price goes up. Of course. Right. Of course. So, I mean, so that's silica sand. You can buy that stuff for 20, $30 a ton. Mm -hmm. All right. By the time you've got it down to, to silicon metal, by the time you've refined it to silicon metal, it goes for about a dollar a pound. Okay. So about you know thousands of dollars a ton, yep. and then polysilicon is ten times as much as that. So at every step of the of, along the road, it gets more and more and more expensive. Wow. Anyway, eventually you got your polysilicon. You melt that polysilicon down. You throw it in these. They're called cu- crucibles, which themselves have to be made out of incredibly incredibly pure quartz. Which by the way, that quartz only comes from one place on Earth. In spruce pine, North Carolina, this weird little Appalachian backwater um, that's, uh, you know, there's a lot more details about it in the book if you're for people who are really into that kind of thing. Um, but basically, you melt down your silicon in these quartz crucibles and set it spinning around. Then you insert a silicon seed crystal, sort of like a, a pencil, like this cylinder into it, spinning in the opposite direction, and then you start pulling that that seed crystal out which then, and around it forms a giant silicon crystal, this dark, shiny, very like sci-fi looking thing that weighs about, usually they weigh a couple of hundred pounds, and those are called ingots. So now you have an ingot of almost entirely of 99.9% pure <laughs> silicon. That's the stuff that's then, that then gets sliced up and turned into Sliced and polished and, uh, and made into computer chips. So it's an enormously complicated process. I mean, it involves, you know, it can involve dozens of, it's, it's a couple of hundred different steps that have to, that go into it. And they can be, those steps can be carried out by, you know, easily a dozen or more different companies along the way.
0: So I think I remember you, you saying that the types of sand that they're looking for are similar or perhaps the same as the types of sand we use to make glass. Is that correct? Or did I hear that yeah, wrong? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I guess that impacts the need for silicon, impacts the need for glass as well, since it's one type of sand that has to supply both industries?
1: Uh, A little bit, but really not very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, The thing about uh, the silicon industry, the silicon chips, it's really... It, it's incredibly important, but the amount, the amounts that we're talking about are actually really, really small. Right. Because you just, you know, computer chips are really small and, uh, and, you know, the amounts that they need are, you know, for your average uh, computer, you're talking about probably less than a gram of silicon. It couldn't work without, you absolutely need that that tiny amount of silicon, the whole computer wouldn't work without it. But the actual amount is is actually really, really small. So even with a as giant as the computer industry is, relatively speaking, the amount of sand that they use up is, it's just a fraction of what goes into glass.
0: Well, and you definitely can't even begin to compare it to the behemoth of concrete. So exactly. uh, it's probably not a huge, a huge sort of impact on, on, sand consumption in the world. Uh, but it's obviously of a, a high importance and growing importance since it now runs the world. So we've sort of built our world with sand, we've built the physical structures of it. But now we're also like running that world increasingly using something that is also created from sand. And I'm wondering, uh, this is just purely a hypothetical. Uh, so if you'll indulge me in my hypothetical. If if we start to run low on those types of sand that we need to make silicon, are there ways to use less pure sand or are we really kind of a bit screwed if we run out of that sand or it becomes more difficult to get or if there it becomes much more expensive to get? I'm just curious if there are ways we can take kind of less pure sand to make it what we need it to or if at some point we're going to have to start looking for other ways to make computers work.
1: Right. I You know, I'm not an... I'm not an I'm not an expert, so I'm, you know, kind of guessing in a very unscientific manner. Fair enough. But I would I would guess that you that you could uh, use less pure sand and just refine it even more. more. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely add to the cost of the whole process, which would be a problem. Probably wreak havoc
0: uh, because all those processes would probably have their own impacts. No doubt. No doubt. As is the rule. I will (laughs) say
1: that, like, I mean the 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 real problems, you know, the the issues of environmental destruction and definitely, you know, the issue of, of organized crime, that's that's almost all driven by sand for concrete. Mm-hmm. Because again, it's a it's a volume issue because the amounts that we use are just so staggeringly huge. Whereas the amounts that we use for for uh, computers, for silicon chips, and even for glass, they're big, but they're there are several orders of magnitude less. So we, we don't really have, we're not really in so much trouble finding that kind of sand as we are just raw bulk sand. Weirdly enough, the stuff that's, the stuff that's more rare, we actually have a better supply of than the stuff that's less rare, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it does. Um, is, is this kind of, Demand for sand starting to have, obviously, obviously there's crime that's happening. So there's clearly being an impact. There's also some ecological impacts, which we've touched on as well. Um, dredging sand from the various places where we dredge sand obviously has impacts on those local areas. Um, and one of the things you, you're, very careful to be quite balanced about in the book in a way that you don't often see is that there are these demands and the demands aren't going to go any go away anytime soon because we want to continue to live the way we live, which means sand has to come from somewhere. And even in places uh, like the US where there has been sand mining and people have pushed back against that sand mining or it has been restricted for ecological reasons, that sand still has to come from somewhere. And we may end up deciding we're happy to pay more for it but it still means that that impact has to happen somewhere in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really feel like this is something that people most people just don't think enough about, right? It's easy to say. First of all, you can't just say, "Well, let's just stop using sand." Obviously, because, you know, no sand, no modern cities. And then it's also you can't it's not really It's easy to say, well, you know, I don't want a sand mine in my backyard, right? I don't want all the the damage and the noise and the hassle. Forget it. No sand mines anywhere near me, which happens a lot, right? There's two proposed sand mines within an hour's drive of me just here in LA that have been fighting in the courts for years. They haven't been able to open because all the folks who live around there don't want it, which is totally understandable. But at the same time, Got to get it from somewhere. Because they still want
0: their roads. (laughs) Because
1: they still want their roads and they want their shopping malls and they want their driveways and everything else. So in a very real way, what can happen is we just end up pushing off all those costs onto less privileged, less powerful people. This this happened in San Diego um, about 15 odd years ago. The city of San Diego basically ran out. They like tapped out all of their local all the sand that they could get at um, for for building and uh, folks out in the suburbs where they could have got more sand said, "No, not in my backyard you 're not digging up any more sand here." So they started buying it so contractors in, and builders in San Diego started buying it from Mexico, and this suddenly created a huge boom in sand mining in Baja. In Baja California, in the part of Mexico that's just south of the border, with all the, you know, all the environmental damage and the black market and everything else that can come with it, to the point where there were he- big demonstrations in Mexico against this. People saying, stop selling our, like, stop ripping up our rivers to get the sand to sell to San Diego. And it became a really contentious issue. For- um, for a few years there, until they basically they basically stopped, and now, among other things, they, San Diego now imports some of its sand from Canada.
0: <laughs> that's, that's, really that's that's a long way to bring a bunch of sand.
1: <laughs> it's a long way to bring sand. It really is. It really is. But it just you know just goes to show you we have to get this stuff. We we can't live without it. And it's not enough to just say, well, not in my backyard. We've really got to think. Beyond that, right? It's got to come from somewhere. We've really got to figure out a way to to um, harvest it to get the sand we need in a in a way that's sustainable, in a way that doesn't do you know serious environmental damage and doesn't end up with people being killed.
0: One of the things you touch on in the book is that this isn't just um, an issue within the developing world that is building new cities. It's also an issue with cities that exist now because that infrastructure and the way we're using concrete doesn't necessarily mean that the things we built don't need to be rebuilt or don't need to be maintained. Um, We need more concrete to rebuild or fix or maintain the things that we have built out of concrete. So once a city is built, its demand doesn't stop Even if you were to put a hypothetical fence around that city to say, we shall expand no more, it doesn't really stop the demand for concrete in the end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because concrete doesn't last. It actually isn't stone. It's artificial stone. And it cracks, it fractures, it fails, and eventually it breaks down It needs to get replaced. We don't know for sure yet, but that, you know, that huge bridge collapse in Italy Mm -hmm. last week or so, I mean, that they think one of the reasons might have been concrete failure. It was like a 50, 60-year-old bridge and the concrete might have just worn out and given way. And that's, you know, huge numbers of bridges and dams and buildings all over the world are made of concrete that's 50, 60, 70, even more years old. And sooner or later, all of it's going to have to be replaced. And that, that's going to be a really big problem.
0: Is there a way that we can recycle concrete?
1: Uh, we can and we do to a, to a limited extent. Um, you can crush down concrete back into sand and then reuse it to make more concrete. So they do that to some extent. Um, but, uh, there's a couple of problems with it. One is that, um, the, the grains that come out of that recrushing process often aren't – they don't really work for new concrete all the time because they've got cement on them and maybe other chemicals and they just – they don't um, – you can't use them to make fresh concrete for something like a high-rise. You can use them for some things like like road base, the very bottom of a road, mm-hmm. um, but not for everything. That's number one. Number two is it's usually more expensive – to do that than it is to just dig up fresh sand and make a fresh batch of concrete. Because you have to break it down first. Exactly. I mean, think about how much energy it takes to smash down concrete back into, you know, back down to grain size.
0: So, is there a way out of this endless sand feedback loop, (laughs) dare I ask? Uh,
1: I think so. I think so. There's certain. I mean, there is, whether or not we'll, we'll figure it out is another question, but basically the The answer is, the answer to the question is really that that's not the that's not the right question because right. The, you can't really just think about how do we solve the problem of sand because sand is just one of many natural resources that we know. We're just using too much of, we're consuming too much of, right? We know we're using up too much fresh water and cutting down too many trees and harvesting too many fish out of the oceans. And, and now we've come to find out we're using too much sand of all things. And all of those to me, just, they're symptoms of the same problem. They all point to the same problem, which is just that our way of life, you know, this way of this very comfortable, you know, resource-intensive way of life that we've invented here in the in the Western world, it's just not sustainable. We just cannot have a world of – we've already got 7 billion people in the world, and we're on our way to – on track to have about 9 billion pretty soon. And we just can't have a world where all of those people live, you know, in detached houses with garages and driveways and drive to work and office plazas and, you know – all this stuff, we've just got to find a way to build our cities more sustainably in ways that'll last. Uh, we've got to find a way to just live our lives, uh, so that, you know, those billions of other people around the world who are catching up with us lifestyle wise and who have every right to, um, that, that all of us will be able to have, you know, decent lives and proper shelter and good roads and all of that. But in a way that, that, that's smaller, in a way where we live a little smaller and just consume less of everything. And that's the moral of the story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As it usually is, I hope that one day we will be able to take that moral. Vince, just before I let you go, I was wondering if you wanted to just uh, pick maybe your one of your most favorite things that you have learned is made out of sand that probably most people don't know is made out of sand. How about toothpaste? Ooh. <laughs>
1: Yeah, to, there's sand in our
0: toothpaste. What's uh, up with that? <sighs> oh, that makes me not want to brush my teeth now before bed.
1: <laughs> I know, but it's actually it's it's like an abrasive. They put a little bit in there to help scrape the plaque off your teeth.
0: I guess that makes sense because in order, right. you know, there is definitely something kind of gritty in toothpaste. So I probably mm-hmm. should have put that together.
1: That's what it is. But who knew? Who would have ever thought? Right?
0: Who knew? Vince, thank you so much. It's a really interesting book. And I learned a lot. And uh, I look at sand very differently now.
1: Well, good. Then then I've done my job.
0: If you want to learn more about Vince, his writing or his book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization, we, of course, will have links for that and more in the show notes for this episode, which, as per usual, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Schell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.